Sensibly Speaking podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you. Oh, I don't know, show 5,000 and something or other (laughs) coming at you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and here with video on YouTube. Okay, so this week we're going to be talking about tribalism, and we're going to be talking about some of the things that go on in people's heads, what I call cognitive mechanisms. Uh, but really, we're just talking about, you know, neurons firing around and the way people think. And the, the, there, there are patterns and there are methods and there are ways that our thinking is similar or the same from one person to the next. Not the content of what we're thinking, but how we go about thinking about things. And I, for one, find this absolutely fascinating because I am very interested in how people behave. And when you start looking into why people behave the way they do, You can't help but start looking at why people think the way they think and why they believe what they believe. And this is, of course, a completely natural outgrowth, at least as far as I'm concerned, from my experience with Scientology as a destructive cult and then looking into, you know, extremism and extremes of belief, why people go there, how they end up in those places. And that leads me to psychology and sociology and neurology. These are three fields I constantly am circling around and looking at and learning about and doing deep dives in to see what research is out there, what studies have been done, and what kind of uh, work has been done in order to help us to understand ourselves better. Uh, I find this work valuable. I find it necessary and useful in my life. Uh, When I learn about these things, it helps me to be more rational, more objective in some ways, more um, uh, able to to distance myself a little bit from some of my beliefs or some of my ideas or conclusions about things, and allows me to be a better, better critical thinker as a result. And that's why I, you know, talk about these things on my show and why I I share this information with you guys, and I hope you find it useful too. So with that all being said, let's go ahead and get into this show. Now, this was actually, this week, this was all prompted by a Facebook post I did a a couple weeks ago, and I I posted something, and then I'll read it to you in a second. And then I got to thinking about it, <laughs> and, and um, you know, a friend of mine and I were recently talking about the fact that I, I, I might possibly overthink things, but she had the, 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 the niceness to point out that that's not necessarily a character flaw or something that's wrong with me. I mean, overthinking, you know, the, the idea of overthinking implies, of course, that you're doing too much of something, but thinking deeply about things... Um, is something I enjoy doing, and uh, I think, you know, bears fruit, you know, (laughs) in terms of uh, getting along better with other people and and even with myself to to some fashion or another. So the post that I wrote a couple weeks ago said this, something to never, ever forget is how strongly people's biases, prejudices, and tribalism actually alters their perceptions. Memories are formed based on how someone thinks they saw or heard something, as well as by actual physical limitations with their senses, not based on what really happened. When there is general agreement about an event from a number of people, one can feel safer that their collective recollection is probably accurate, 
But there are many examples in history of mass hysteria. And never forget how easily mobs are riled up around complete lies. This is more important and pervasive than I think is generally understood. People's actual lives are usually very different from what they think they lived. This is something I keep in mind often when recalling my own experiences and when interviewing others. But it's more important when it comes to how and why we all form judgments. Social media is the epitome of this. Free reign is given to complete delusion, and then people are running with it, lining up dutifully on opposing sides and all too willing to destroy each other when someone doesn't agree with them completely. I worry about our future given how common this is becoming. I hope my worries are just unfounded. Now, of course, uh, and that was what I posted. Now, of course, um, you know, I tend to spend time every day on social media. It's a necessary part of my existence uh, in order to promote my work and in order to interact with you guys as my as my fan base out there or people who follow my work in some fashion. I, I, don't, I, I hesitate. You know, I say the word fan base. I, I, don't, I don't think I have fans out there. I just think I have people who, who, who think I might have something valuable to say every now and again. Um, but anyway, interacting with you guys as a community, which I've tried to create and form through, um, through the comment section of my YouTube channel and through, through Facebook and through the Facebook page I've created for my work, which you guys can, uh, if you're on Facebook, I, I recommend you like or, or follow that page because there's, uh, you know, I po post all my work there. Um, anyway, so I tend to look at social media through a fairly harsh light uh, because I've had a number of, you know, bad interactions with people myself over the last few years. Um, I've had people come at me on social media, of course. I've, I've also witnessed other people going at other people. And I, you know, it, it's, I'm probably a bit biased and unfair about that because I think that there's probably a lot more good going on in social media and um, a lot of good, you know, f favorable, happy, you know, uh, interactions between people. Um, but, you know, you go onto a platform like Twitter is different from Facebook, let's say, or, or Instagram, and, and it's just a seething mass of... <laughs> what I call the narcissistic outrage machine. And that is unfortunate. That's that's sort of the, you know, the 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 black side of our of our personalities comes out quite often uh, when we are able to post anonymously or are able to talk to people who are themselves anonymous. So we don't really care who they are or what their opinions are. So we feel entitled to trash them and and badmouth them and that sort of thing. Anyway, I, I've tended to focus on the negative aspects of social media, but I want to say up front that I recognize that there are very, very many positive aspects to it, too. Now, where I started thinking, there's a lot that could be deconstructed or looked at from that post that I made. I mean, it talks about tribalism, it talks about social media, it talks about perception, um, it talks about memory. And I got interested in this, and I thought, maybe there's a podcast here. And once I started putting some things together, uh, it started with the concept of tribalism. And tribalism is a word I've seen more often recently uh, in, in papers and in, uh, in studies and stuff. 
in, in general discourse, this word tribalism is making its way out there. Um, so so it's a good, as good a word as any to describe the way that we collectively sort of group together in our little in-groups and, uh, and are part of our different tribes. And, and it's quite an interesting thing all by itself. I, I looked it up, and this is a quote from Wikipedia. It says, tribalism is the state of being organized by or advocating for tribes or tribal lifestyles. Human evolution has primarily occurred in small groups, as opposed to mass societies, and humans naturally maintain a social network. In popular culture, tribalism may also refer to a way of thinking or behaving in which people are loyal to their social group above all else, or derogatorily, a type of discrimination or animosity based upon group differences. Tribalism, or at least the desire to find similarities based on common characteristics, is littered throughout our language. Uh, I actually looked up some things here. I thought this was kind of funny. There are, there are a lot of phrases which show um, a, a kind of collective, you know, this idea of, of collecting together or working together. Um, There's all these little uh, uh, idioms and phrases like two peas in a pod, thick as thieves, Birds of a feather flock together, uh, cast in the same mold, on the same wavelength, one of the same kind, a mirror image, a meeting of minds, to be of like mind, two halves of a whole, from the same school or factory, tarred with the same brush, cut from the same cloth, the brother I never had, like two drops of water, my brother from another mother. <laughs> So there's, you know, clearly, and I'm sure those are just some of the phrases and, and, and expressions out there to express um, a, a connectedness between people, you know. And some tribes can be located in geographically close areas like villages or bands, though telecommunications now enables groups of people to form digital tribes using tools like social networking websites. And of course, that's, you know, what I was just talking about. A note I should make about this is, and a, and a field of study that's quite interesting is, in moving forward, is going to be uh, looking into online cultic behavior, where it's a different model than what has been looked at before with in real life cultic relationships or groups. Because, of course, over an online connection, you can't beat on your followers. <laughs> You can't physically abuse them, yet you can still mentally indoctrinate them into extremist beliefs, or you can radicalize people uh, online. So that forms a different and interesting model that is only now being uh, seriously studied. So whereas um, psychology and psychiatry and sociology are relatively new fields with a whole lot of research, at least they've had a couple decades to put some things together. Uh, this particular modeling and this look at online extremist activity is is very very new ground, and I'm um, I, I'd, I'd like to eventually contribute to some of that research myself. Now I made some notes here, which we're going to go over during this podcast. Now, so um, so some of this I'll I'll be going back and forth between some uh, you know just ad libbing here, but mostly just going through some of the notes that I made uh, in terms of tribalism. Loyalty to the tribe is the highest moral principle. This is why when you rat out the tribe or anyone in it, 
no matter for what reason, you're the bad guy. If you bring disgrace to the tribe, you've committed the ultimate sin because the tribe represents all that is good and right and ultimately true. This is what justifies mass slaughter of people who are not in the tribe, whether that slaughter is real or just figurative. And this, of course, uh, feeds into, you know, people ask, how can people who are, say, in religious groups, I won't even specify which ones, but just how can people who profess to have these beliefs, according to their dogma, then do XYZ when XYZ clearly violates their dogma? And this, this subject, this issue of tribalism answers that question because to go against the group as a group, whether the group is following their own dogma or not, that's of secondary importance to whether you're going against or bad-mouthing or somehow betraying the group itself. And that is actually the senior consideration, because if you look at it from a sociological perspective, a group only exists if the people who are in it all have a common agreement of some kind that keeps them cohesively together. And if somebody goes off the reservation, so to speak, and starts bad-mouthing the group or criticizing some aspect of what the group is doing, regardless of, again, whether it follows the dogma of the group or not, that person has to be an outcast because they're threatening the survival of the group by tearing, attempting to tear it apart or enter you know, some kind of discord into the group. So you can see pretty easily why this, you know, the, the survival of the group itself becomes of paramount importance to the group even over its own teachings or rules or guidelines. And this, is, this happens every single day. This is, this is why Scientologists will disconnect from family members even though the dogma of Scientology clearly states over and over again, that communication is the only and universal solvent for all problems in interpersonal relationships. So Scientologists should be the most communicative, the most willing to talk out their problems and differences, the most willing to sit down and parlay and, and, and work things out through communication. Hubbard wrote in a book in 1955 way before the whole disconnection policy ever came along, that, that through communication alone, any problem could be resolved. And I don't happen to think that that's true anymore, but I did believe that that was true for many, many years as a Scientologist. And I used that uh, to get through a whole lot of difficulties and problems that people did think were unsolvable, but I managed through communication to resolve them. So it was a fairly workable you know, dogmatic principle, actually, in many, many ways. Um, but I, like I said, I don't claim that it's now a universally workable principle that will always solve any problem. But Scientologists have completely turned their backs on that piece of dogma, that rule, or that, that piece of information from Hubbard, because he later said, disconnection is the thing, right? And if you don't disconnect from these, you know, horrible, awful people that we have said are horrible, awful people then you're going to be disconnected. You're going to be shunned and kicked out of the group. And again, that goes right back to what I was just talking about in terms of the group's survival. That is more important than anything else going on within that group or any other rules or dictates of the group. All right, so there's a group called 
the Cultural Cognition Project, which is actually studying this whole thing about the, the tribalism I was talking about there um, and how you could you know, justify violating its dogma. Um, they're studying this at Yale. And cultural cognition refers to the tendency of individuals to conform their beliefs about disputed matters of fact, for example, whether humans are causing global warming, whether the death penalty deters murder, whether gun control makes society more safe or less, to values that define their cultural identities. So basically, we're talking about the fact that people will conform with the rules or beliefs of the group and put aside you know, their own ideas. The fact that this phenomenon even needs to be studied shows that without any doubt that people do not form ideas or conclusions based on facts so much as they do their affiliations and their perceived identity. If they identify as a blue smurf, then of course they will live in mushroom houses because there's no other way to live. And here's the catch. They will then tailor all of their thinking, even if just subconsciously, to fit that conclusion. The conclusion comes first, and any facts that they gather or listen to are only facts if they support the conclusion that they've already come to. Otherwise, they can be dismissed. They can just, you know, here comes this incoming piece of information, and they just dismiss it out of hand. Now, this doesn't conform. It's fake news. It's bi- you're biased. You're opinionated. You're this. You're that. This, this is just alternative facts or whatever other toss-off nonsense they want to use to dismiss what could be a point of objective reality. Of course, this is, you know, there, there are lots of times when people who have odd or strange beliefs or, or unusual ideas are right about something. Just because somebody is labeled as a cultist or something doesn't mean everything they say or think. Uh, is wrong, but when it comes to attacking or challenging or questioning their hardcore beliefs or dogma, um, this is how they react, is they've come to conclusions, and those conclusions have to be supported by certain pieces of information, and anything that doesn't conform with that, they get, it's ejected, it's, 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 not, it's not accepted. Um, and cults, of course, are just the most intense version of tribalism. A person buys into the premise of the cult or the tribe and usually experiences some kind of event which they interpret as a spiritual or somehow profound personal revelation, and then that is what seals the deal. They're then convinced that the cult or the tribe is the bearer of all truth, or at least the most important truths there are to know. They don't have to necessarily think that the cult has all the answers, but they certainly uh, have to think that the cult has the most important answers that make life make sense or make some aspect of life make sense. Now, here's the real kicker, and this is the thing about tribalism, because I've been thinking about and looking at this for quite a while, and like, well, well, what do we do about this? You know, it's such a big, basic problem. Well, (laughs) here's the kicker, man. Uh, There's no getting out of tribalism. You know, we are social creatures. We're evolutionarily tuned to have to be in tribes. We feel isolated, alone, outcast, and our self-esteem or even our sanity can go to hell if we're not accepted in some group, even if it's just a book club or some other small social meeting. 
Let me quote from, uh, I was looking some stuff up on this, and I found a 2014 Frontline article which cited research that was done on this subject. Uh, so this is a quote from that. In one notorious study from the 1950s, University of Wisconsin psychologist Harry Harlow placed rhesus monkeys inside a custom-designed solitary chamber nicknamed the Pit of Despair. Shaped like an inverted pyramid, the chamber had slippery sides that made climbing out all but impossible. After a day or two, Harlow wrote, most subjects typically assume a hunched position in a corner of the bottom of the apparatus. One might presume at this point that they find their situation to be hopeless. Harlow also found that monkeys kept in isolation wound up profoundly disturbed, given to staring blankly and rocking in place for long periods, circling their cages repetitively and mutilating themselves. Most readjusted eventually, but not those that had been caged the longest. Twelve months of isolation almost obliterated the animals socially, Harlow found. Similar studies on human subjects are rare, in part because most modern universities would never consent to them. But in 1951, researchers at McGill University paid a group of male graduate students to stay in small chambers equipped with only a bed for an experiment on sensory deprivation. They could leave to use the bathroom, but that's all. They wore goggles and earphones to limit their sense of sight and hearing, and gloves to limit their sense of touch. The plan was to observe students for six weeks, but not one lasted more than seven days. Nearly every student lost the ability to think clearly about anything for any length of time, while several others began to suffer hallucinations. One man could see nothing but dogs, wrote one of the study's collaborators. Another, nothing but eyeglasses of various types, and so on. Stuart Grazian, a board-certified psychiatrist and a former faculty member at Harvard Medical School, has interviewed hundreds of prisoners in solitary confinement. In one study, he found that roughly a third of solitary inmates were actively psychotic and or acutely suicidal. Grazian has since concluded that solitary can cause a specific psychiatric syndrome characterized by hallucinations, panic attacks, overt paranoia, diminished impulse control, hypersensitivity to external stimuli, and difficulties with thinking, concentration, and memory. Some inmates lose the ability to maintain a state of alertness, while others develop crippling obsessions. This is so bad that legislation has actually gone into place to prevent pregnant women, the mentally ill, and juveniles from being put in solitary confinement. But I have to say right now that how anyone can justify putting anyone in these conditions is beyond me. And anyone who thinks that solitary confinement is somehow doing somebody a favor by protecting them from the general prison population or is somehow a, a really great idea that you put somebody into a 10 by 10 room with a bed and a toilet and give them food under a slot in the door for 23 hours a day and let them out for one hour a day to exercise in a caged space, again, without social interaction, 
that is literally crazy making. And the science on this and the studies on this I just read from make it very clear that this is something we have known about for a very long time. So uh, if you're looking for, you know, the definition of cruel and unusual punishment, I'd say solitary confinement meets that definition. Now, obviously, very few of us live lives of such isolation, but I think the point's clear. There are parts of our brain or mind that demand we interact with others. And if we don't, our minds start to break down. So the solution to extreme tribalism, if there is one, is definitely not to go off and be an island and think you're going to make your own way without the advice or help of other people. <laughs> That's simply not an option. I've been diving into what are called cognitive mechanisms lately because they are very revealing in terms of how we actually think versus how we think we think <laughs> or how we would like to think. Processing information, forming opinions or judgments, and coming to conclusions are all regulated by how we think. And if our thinking is screwy, then of course our conclusions are going to be screwy. And that means we're going to get into all kinds of trouble with other people. So it's definitely in our best interests to understand what's going on two to three inches behind our foreheads. The first thing to overcome is the natural instinct when faced with conflicting information to put up our defenses and fight. That's the first thing. It's actually kind of funny because so much of our social discourse is something we now treat like a battle. But we're often our own worst enemy in these fights because while we like to think we're armed with facts and opinions and authorities that are always right, the truth is that we're not always right. And sometimes we are incredibly wrong. If winning arguments is your goal, that's easy. You can engage with anyone at any time and whenever you feel like it, you can declare yourself a winner and just walk away. People do this all the time, and they haven't really accomplished much of anything except riling themselves up and pissing off the person they're arguing with. It doesn't feel like much of a victory because, let's face it, that, that really isn't much of a victory. Now, maybe you're the kind of person who's watching this right now who can do that, and you can just walk away and not give it another thought. But for me, I hate it when I leave a conversation or a disagreement unsettled. I feel anxious, upset, angry, and sometimes the adrenaline and the testosterone have flooded my system so much, I want to go find a punching bag. My blood pressure can feel like it's through the roof, and sometimes my heart even starts going because I get so emotionally invested in the conversation. Yet on the flip side, when things go well, and I've managed to convince the person I'm arguing with that we actually can agree on something and we find common ground, then all of that goes away. Sometimes that happens when I show them something they didn't know, or they show me something I didn't know, or we realize we maybe both had something to learn, and when we're done talking, we're both better people for the experience. Now, wouldn't that be a more ideal way to deal with this? I think so. In order to truly win... It would seem to me that you'd want to walk away with something approximating the truth. So what gets in our way? Why are we our own worst enemy sometimes? 
Let's talk about two of these cognitive mechanisms I was referring to earlier. First off is a term that I think many of you will be familiar with. You've heard it probably hundreds of times at this point on my channel, and it's cognitive dissonance. And this is the mental discomfort that's experienced by a person who simultaneously holds two or more contradictory beliefs, ideas, or values. This discomfort is triggered by a situation in which the belief of a person clashes with new evidence perceived by that person. One way we deal with cognitive dissonance is motivated reasoning. Now, I don't particularly think that this is a healthy way of handling things, but people do it all day, every day. Motivated reasoning is basically emotion-based decision-making, where the thing that makes a person feel good or feel right is the thing the person believes must be true, regardless of any objective evidence to the contrary. In other words, rather than search rationally for information that either confirms or disconfirms a particular belief, people actually seek out information that only confirms what they already believe. The bottom line is the thing that makes their decisions for them is not the rational validity of the information, but how they feel about it. And this is, of course, where a great deal of denial comes from. It's not just a river in Egypt. <laughs> Such a stupid joke, and I can't help saying it every single time I use that word. Now, here's a funny and interesting way of sidestepping this and tricking our minds into doing our thinking a little bit better. A lot of the initial research on motivated reasoning was done at Princeton University by a woman named Ziva Kunda. And she wrote that when accuracy is the goal, instead of feeling good or feeling right, then we automatically will be a lot more careful in our thinking. Okay? Accuracy. If we have to justify our conclusions to other people, or if we're told before forming our conclusions that the information is going to be used in some really important way that's actually going to matter, then we will dig deeper when we're doing our thinking and when we're doing our evaluating. In other words, if we raise the stakes and the consequences, then we'll take just a little more time to make sure that our conclusions don't just make us feel good, but that we actually can back them up with real facts that will stand up to scrutiny. And this is, of course, where, you know, when people are in debate class, for example, I mean, you can go into a debate and you can wing it, but you're probably going to lose. But knowing the fact that you're going into a debate, you're going to study that much harder. You're going to make sure your sources and your, and your fact-checking are that much more accurate because you're going to be standing in front of or sitting in front of people and you're going to be presenting this information, and you're going to be challenged on it. And you're going to be challenged hard by people who think the exact opposite and are arguing just as hard and have done just as much research. So you're going to come in there if you're going to be a good debater, and you're going to be prepared, and you're going to have all of this at your fingertips. You're going to be ready to go, but you're not going in there with things that just make you feel good. You're going in there with facts and evidence and studies and lineups at least if you're going in as a good critical thinker and debater, you are, right? Again, some people don't, and uh, they tend to not do a very good job at their debating because things that make you feel good 
don't necessarily make other people feel the same way. <laughs> and if you think that's all you need in order to prove something to somebody or get your ideas across or change somebody else's mind, well, <laughs> that might not work so good. Now, obviously, there are lots of things we do in life where accuracy doesn't really matter that much, or we can fake it until we make it, or we can fudge some things and still come out okay. Uh, cooking, for example, is not an exact science. We can throw a few things into the cake mix that we think might work, and odds are no one's going to lose their minds over it. But what if I said that you were making a cake for Gordon Ramsay? Or Guy Fieri. Would you be so loosey-goosey? Would you be so willing to take chances? You see how this works? When I said that, I'm pretty sure most of you listening thought, oh no, I'd, I'd definitely be more careful about following that recipe if I was cooking for one of those guys. You'd really want to bring your A-game, right? That's the difference I'm talking about between being emotional in your thinking versus being accurate. So when does it matter? Well, priorities and importances are relative. What's important to me here in Denver doing my YouTube channel is probably very different from what would be important to a corn farmer in Iowa or an Arabian concrete worker in Dubai. Yet we all use the same cognitive mechanisms in our thinking, and we all should probably strive to be more accurate in our thinking when we're dealing with matters of life or death or matters that are going to have long-term effects on our personal lives. And this includes making decisions about new groups to join. <laughs> if you're looking for some way to stay out of a cult or a, or a bad situation, this is it. You know, step back. Don't go with what makes you feel good or think that it's right because you have this warm, fuzzy feeling in your stomach over it. No, step back. Give yourself some time. Be accurate. Be precise. Strive for goal-oriented thinking rather than feeling-oriented thinking. And when you do that, then your decisions are more rational and they're more, they're more objective. And that's ultimately what I think, um, you know, matters. I mean, our, all of our lives are very individual, and the priorities we have, they're all very individual. So it really is up to each of us. It's not up to me to tell you what's important in your life. You know what's important. I'm just advising that you know, where, how you go about investing your, your time and your mental energy. I, now, I happen to think that subjects like politics and news and religion should be given deep thought. And we should take care to be accurate and goal-oriented when we dive into those topics. I think, personally, that the laziest thing anyone can do is say, well, I was raised that way, so that's how it is. Or, God said it, so that's the end of the conversation. I, you know, I mean, talk about somebody who's not using their brain. I mean, where did God say that? Did you hear God speak? How did that, how, you know, where, where, where did you hear him speak? I mean, there's all, so many questions, right? But I'm not, I'm not trying to get into religion bashing here. I'm just pointing out that if the reason you think God is real is because someone told you that when you were three years old and you've never questioned it since, there might be some more thinking to do on that particular topic. I wish we had easy answers to all of this trouble we have with our thinking, but we don't. 
The research on all of this is still very new and very much in development. And these mechanisms and phrases like cognitive dissonance and motivated reasoning may well develop in whole new directions over the coming years, and I actually kind of hope they do. I hope we learn a lot more about all of this by coordinating what we've learned in psychology and sociology and neurology. Maybe we'll eventually figure out what the ego and consciousness are really all about, and wouldn't that be something? In the meantime, we struggle along and we do the best we can, and and I hope that this information that I'm passing on here in this particular podcast is of use to you guys in making more informed and rational decisions. And on that note, I'd also like to note that um, for those of you who've been uh, followers on my channel, watched my uh, recent Q&A shows, and have been kind of keeping up on things with me and, and how things are going, um, I am going to, I did get a lot of feedback on this uh, critical thinker uh, versus critical thinker at large uh, branding, I guess you could say, for my channel. And it was definitely keep the critical thinker at large. So I've made that very much part of all of my new, um, I guess, branding or, or imagery or whatever that I've put across all my platforms on Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and stuff. So you can see that reflected now. Uh, it will stay Chris Shelton, critical thinker at large. So uh, so rest easy, folks. <laughs> that decision has been made and it's final. All right, guys. So if you have any comments or criticism or questions or feedback, whether it's good, bad, or sideways, I'm very interested in hearing what you have to say about this. I hope that, um, like I said, this information is helpful. But if it's not, if it can be improved upon, if you think that there's things I should know about, um, please go ahead and link me to it, you know, throw it my way. I'm pretty much willing to look at almost anything. Um, if I haven't already so thoroughly debunked it that I'm really not interested in revisiting that territory. <laughs> but those are only, you know, that's really my only limitations on accepting new information these days is pretty much if I've, you know, if I've looked into something on a deep dive like flat earthers or the Illuminati or something, you know, okay, I, I don't feel any need to revisit any of that. But uh, when it comes to cognitive reasoning and, and sociology and neurology and all this kind of stuff, I'm, I'm fascinated by it, and I hope you guys are too, because I'm probably going to talk about it some more. <laughs> all right, folks. Thanks for coming around and listening to what I had to say. Uh, this was a shorter podcast than usual, but I, I think I got everything I wanted to get across, and I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.